Welcome to EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. The pandemic has brought renewed attention to the development of new drugs and vaccines, so it's been a niche area in EIS. Today we have a biotech expert who is trying to change that. Sonal Shah talks about the pros and cons of investing in this area and debunks some of the myths as well. If you enjoy the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all good podcast services, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you have any suggestions for future topics, then you can email us at inquiries at harmonandco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today on the podcast, we are joined by Sunil Shah, who is Managing Partner at O2H Ventures. Welcome to the podcast, Sunil. Hi, Brian. Thank you. So as usual, we'd like to start with learning a little bit about you. So can you tell us how you became an EIS fund manager? My, my journey is more of an entrepreneurial journey, actually. I started as a biochemist by training, worked at PA Consulting for four years, did my MBA at The Judge, sold my dissertation to a bunch of drug companies, actually, back then managed to pay off all my fees and I uh, teamed up with my brother Prashant to do startup number one, which was actually in the tech space. So we, we were original dot-com entrepreneurs. We had a website called surprisingwoman.com, nothing to do with biotech whatsoever. That's probably where we learned all our sort of key business skills. And, you know, one minute you're the sexiest entrepreneur in town, the next minute boo.com happened and no one would even return our calls. So it was quite an experience. But as we came out of that, we basically, through necessity, we went back into biotech. And that's an area that we I, I knew well from earlier. And we were doing various consultancy roles for, for the sector and anyone that moved really to earn money. And we realized there was a lot of chemistry being outsourced to India, but there was lots of problems around the project management and communication. Uh, we set up a business around that, remortgage a house from the beginning. So a very much entrepreneurial journey. We grew the team to around 275 people, 300 people or so. And we exited that business to a mid-sized farmer in India called Piramal. And as we came out of that, we basically wanted to be more innovation driven in our second, our third startup in a way. And we were investing our own money into biotech companies that we'd seen along the way. We had, a, through building that earlier business, we really sort of created quite a strong network in the industry, not just in the UK, but in the US and Japan as well. So as we were doing that investing, we saw the, the massive opportunity, not just then, but over the you know the 10 years or so that we'd been building the previous business. We saw the opportunity, big pharma are literally closing down their R&D sites around the world. They were becoming more reliant on external innovation from biotechs, which was driving up the asset prices, forcing earlier exits. I'm sure we'll come on to that. But that is the reason why we thought it was a great opportunity, an irresistible opportunity to invest into biotech. And so we started angel investing, which morphed into an EIS fund. I'm sure we'll dig more on, on all those things. But, you know, that's how we got into it. And uh, since then, obviously, O2H has expanded and I can tell you more. Yeah. So maybe for a bit more background, tell us a little bit more about what O2H is and what O2H does. So O2H is, is a group, um, the fund is, you know, what we're here to talk about. We also have a drug discovery therapeutic services group based in UK and India. And in the UK, we've acquired a, a mill building, which is very close to AstraZeneca headquarters in Addenbrooke's. There's three buildings on the site. It's a beautiful site with a river cam running through the middle of it. And uh, Prashant and, and my brother is basically very much in the detail of the design phase and getting all the planning, but the first building will go live where we'll have incubator space and biology labs to support some of our more earlier creations, I would say. Excellent. So we have, we, have, we basically have an ecosystem that we've, we've been building and developed to support early stage UK biotech. I think that's what we do as a group. 
That sounds, all sounds really interesting. So biotech and therapeutics is an area that's kind of niche within EIS and not too many people leave invest in it. And, and you're probably they've got the most intense focus on it. So I thought it would be good for us to dig into a little bit about background about the industry and perhaps how investing in therapeutics works for EIS. So you touched on earlier about the environment with Big Pharma and what they've done with R&D over the last few decades, really. So maybe, maybe just yeah. set that scene a bit more. Yeah, I'll set that scene. I mean, in the UK, you are right. I think early stage investing in biotech, people would think we're completely off our rockers, especially a few years back, because <laughs> uh, we're sort of early, early into it. But, you know, we've seen what happened in the US, in the Boston cluster, in San Francisco. The US investors are very clued into backing their earlier stage science and at much higher valuations than we would than we would pay for here, and we've seen that cluster, that Boston cluster, really boom. The San Francisco cluster really mm -hmm. boom. So, you know, we saw the opportunity in, in in the UK at a very early stage. We could invest in science, which we think is equally as good as the US, but the capabilities that we have in the UK are probably a more cost effective way of developing that science, but equally as talented in a way. So, we've got a great scientific base a very strong way of executing and building that scientific science into products, drugs, et cetera, and doing it at probably better valuations. I mean, when we develop IP in the UK, it's just not for the NHS. It's for global, you know, you're mm -hmm. filing intellectual property for the US, for Europe, Japan, et cetera. So I think this, instead of laying this sort of the landscape, UK investing in biotech, I think, is highly interesting. You are right. We are one of the very few people that come in as early as we do. I think that's changing. In the in the US, if I said I've got a small fund investing in biotech, it'll be join the back of your queue in front of the thousand other people in front of you that do this. But in the UK, I think you know it's definitely there's more money coming into early stage because of the ecosystem we've developed. I think we've got quite a good head start being able to invest early. And I think EIS, we're so lucky to have that here in a way. It's, it feels tailor-made for biotech investing because it does de-risk it somewhat uh, in terms of the, the tax uh, rebate that we that investors generally get, depending on their tax bracket, into de-risking some of those opportunities. So I think EIS and KI and SEIS are really you know, something that the UK government, the British government has, have done. And we're very, when I tell our US colleagues that we have this in the UK, they're, they, they're so jealous in a way. So I think the, the whole ecosystem is really coming together quite well for early stage biotech investing. I, I think a lot of people know the background, but I just want to make, make, make some of this clear because certainly when we're looking at, I mean, if you look at COVID vaccines, who are we looking at? We're looking at AstraZeneca, we're looking at Pfizer, all right, Moderna's new, but people are seeing the big pharma household names producing these vaccines. And I think people still probably think that Glaxo and AstraZeneca and I was going to say SmithKline, but that's part of Glaxo now. All these big drug companies are where drugs come from, but that's kind of not really the case. They are hugely powerful and supportive in developing drugs and marketing the drugs. Mm -hmm. But a number of years back, they really did, for various reasons, they thought that they were not as efficient at doing the innovative piece as some of the smaller biotechs were. And there's lots of papers on Rito and about why and what that reason why that is the case. So they're basically now, in, rather than try to do a lot of the innovation in-house, they still do somewhat and they have core capabilities, but they will invest in, support, partner with very small fledgling biotech sometimes 
to support them with their drug development discovery activities with money and expertise as required, with a view that they would acquire the innovation, often preclinically. And I think the, the market demand for those assets has increased so much that you know you don't have to, as a biotech investor, stay in for the whole journey till it's a marketed drug and being bought by a billion dollar, et cetera, sales. You can pr- probably have a reasonable chance of exiting much earlier in the cycle now as big pharma come to partner or collaborate, whether it's AZ, GSK, Pfizer, Merkel, and or even now many of the listed biotechs on NASDAQ, which have fairly expansive balance sheets, they, you know, they may look to take an option deal on your drug or your platform, support it with service revenue and or acquire the, the company outright uh, when they see that they, they can bring it into their four walls and, and develop it through what they're good at, which is really the later development stage in the marketing and sales. And that's where they're sort of moving towards. So I think but biotech has carved out its kind of innovative early stage capabilities as such that big pharma, rather than do it themselves, is cheaper and more efficient for them just to acquire that innovation. I think that's where the opportunity lies in biotech. Yeah, because one of the challenges which you alluded to earlier is that developing a, a drug or a new therapeutic is actually a very long process. And as I think we've probably all seen now about phase one, phase two, phase three trials. Again, COVID's probably highlighted this all a lot. But how long does it typically take for a new therapeutic to get to the point where someone with a disease can actually take it from start to finish and you know there's huge variances and timelines from 10 years to 20 years etc etc but you know the point i would like to make is that when we invest into biotech we don't necessarily invest to be there for the whole journey mm-hmm. and you know you can invest very early stage look to exit when the wall of money comes in at series a series b through a secondary potential ipos i think you know nasdaq has shown that biotechs can exit onto public markets at very good valuations and i think the market big pharma could come and acquire you so our remit when we look to invest is to do we think this is a kind of scientific innovation that big pharma might want to acquire or buy so although the timelines we all know they could be really sort of 10 20 years and, and anything in between or more but you know as a biotech early stage investor we will look to uh, create exit opportunities in the preclinical phase or early phase one or two trials and i think if you can come up with good data during that time there's a good opportunity to exit, exit. So that's what we're looking at. So, so usually you're sort of saying phase one is not terribly capital intensive. Phase two is a little bit more. Phase three is where you really need the capital. And that's the phase you really want Big Pharma to come in and fund. But you can get it through phase one. Yeah, let and, me give an example because sometimes yeah. it's easier to... So we invested in a spin-out from Nottingham uh, called XNA. You know, we, we were the first investors and I'm actually chairman as well. And we got a Wellcome Trust Award, some soft money. So there's quite a lot of soft money in our sector. We're pretty good at sort of finding that. Uh, but it was completely angel-invested, uh, angel-backed in a way, right to the point where Janssen Pharmaceuticals, which is J&J's operating pharmaceutical company, did an option deal for the project, which was in mid lead op you could say or late lead op so it wasn't a clinical even a clinical asset at that point with the funding that they gave us and numbers are not announced but it's an option deal where they fund the r&d piece and then pay milestone and royalties upon success basically there was no more capital requirements from the existing investors from that pre-clinical stage and if the 
project, which is now in a phase one clinical trial in Australia, if it's successful, it will tackle a multi-billion dollar market. It's macular degenerative wet AMD. Right now, currently, the, the treatment for wet AMD is an injection into the eye. This would be a drop. So it would be a game changer for that sector. Janssen spotted that. They fund in the whole program and there's big returns for investors if, if it makes it through to a drug. If we get good data along the way, it's probably quite likely that them or someone will probably acquire the company, let's say. Uh-huh. That's an example of why you don't have to stay in right till it's a marketing drug. I would imagine that Janssen, J&J, or another big pharma in, in similar types of products would acquire rather than pay those heavy milestones, which is, you know, they obviously would be in hundreds of millions if it was successful. Yeah. And one of the things you mentioned when we spoke last time, not in the podcast for anyone who's wondering where, where the previous episode has gone, was you mentioned that there's capital coming into this area and there's an increase in the number of sort of secondaries where you've got later stage venture yep. capitalists buying out the early stage investors. What we're seeing is, and we, we can talk about COVID and other things, but partly driven by COVID, but this trend was happened way before COVID actually is that there's a lot of money coming into the biotech sector. Now, you can just open up your news feed and pitch book and everything else, and you see new funds which invest into biotech. But they mainly invest, actually, especially the international money, into things that which are a a clinical asset, so a Series A, Series B, Mm -hmm. and beyond. So there's a huge wall of money, and and the numbers are are eye-watering in terms of the new money coming in. But where there is not as much new money coming in is in that pre-seed, seed phase. So if you can if you can uh, support and fund a company through the early stage, let's just put numbers on this, at a low single-digit million valuation or thereabouts, and take it through that early stage, you have competition for for investment at the, at the Series A or Series B, which A, much higher asset prices, so 20, 30, 40, 50 millions types and more. And you know, you create competition. So then there could be opportunities to exit in that secondary to one of the other funds where it's a US fund. And quite frankly, they're quite, we're quite happy to take an exit at that stage as long as it's a big enough uplift. And they don't really want us annoying small investors on the cap table. In a way, you know, we are create, seeing a lot of secondary options coming into the market. And we're trying to look for those now for our portfolio companies. We've had one happened recently to Warburg Pincus in the company that we angel backed. We have, I've had the opportunity to exit on two more of my existing portfolio in that same secondary type scenario, but I just thought that it's too irresistible to stay in the game on those two because the upside was still there. So we decided to stay. You know, we are seeing more secondary opportunities, way more than I saw much earlier in my life cycle of angel investing. Yeah. I mean, certainly sec- increased secondary is something we've seen elsewhere in the venture capital industry as well. But you touch on one interesting point there in terms of getting good multiples and finding the right price. To me, when I look at therapeutics, there's an element of what one of my colleagues used to call a hero or buttock in terms of either the drug works or the drug doesn't. And these interim valuations seem quite hard. How do you judge about what's the right price to exit at? That's a good question. But before I can answer that, I just need to probably just say a little bit about where we actually invest. And so, you know, you're right that a lot of the things that we do, or some of the things that say a third roughly, are single product therapeutics where they work or they don't work, but that's part of what we do. But therapeutics, we do focus broadly on therapeutics, but there are three buckets, you know, macular degenerates, exonate type things. That's a significant portion of what we do. But it's not the only thing. And I think that's where we'll probably get our biggest upsides. 
but to to balance the risk, create and develop that portfolio. So let's put the therapeutics in higher risk, but much, much, much higher upside. Mm-hmm. We also invest in service companies into the space, like for example, Metrion, who do screening, iron channel screening and cardiac screening based in Cambridge. They're a revenue generating business and they make a profit. So we're actually following our money into that round right now that's it's about to close. They generate revenues, it's profitable. I do think, you know, there'll be an exitable opportunity at some point. It won't be as higher multiples as we would get on, say, the therapeutic stuff, but it's much, much lower risk. And then the third area is where AI and machine learning can support and speed up discovery or development times in biotech. And obviously, we'll probably touch on that because it's kind of a new area. But that that creates more of a platform approach where you're not just backing one particular drug target or one particular therapeutic. Normally, these uh, machine learning or technology platforms, you're targeting multiple therapeutic areas and there's opportunities for collaboration with pharma. So that does reduce the overall risk profile. So, so that sets the scene as of risk management. It will put therapeutics at higher risk but much higher return. But and where honestly, I think we're you know hand on heart. That's where I think we're going to get a lot of our return from uh, the AI machine learning piece, which is a newer area, and we've made a number of investments in that space. Uh, and the services where I think we will get returns and exits, but not the multiples, you know, not the hundreds of millions that we talk about with therapeutics. So that's all about. So, but the uh, value. How do you value was a question, right? So on the service side. The valuations are actually astonishingly high at the moment, multiple-wise. I was looking at some service companies which are listed, for example, Syngene based in India or Evotect, which is a different stock market, or even Abcam, which is not quite services, but it's something more closer to home. It's more of a product based in the healthcare biotech industry. And they're all trading around 10, 9, 10, 11 times multiple of revenues, which is, I just looked at that yesterday, just for another random reason. <laughs> but they, astonishingly high at the moment. I don't think that's sustainable. I think the multiples will probably back down. And we see it all over the you know the markets, asset bubbles appearing everywhere. And I think there's maybe one appearing in that in that area. But you know, there is massive multiples on service companies right now. The AI machine learning type companies we're seeing, the entry tickets into some of these are astonishingly high. We have to be very careful when we invest in those types of companies. As we saw with companies like Benevolent and others, investing at the right price, I think it's key if we love the technology. And that's what we try to do on the AI or sort of more machine learning companies because so much tech money chasing those right now, it's really increasing those, even the entry tickets, even at the early stages is, is uh, rocketing. Mm-hmm. So we have to go in that bit earlier maybe or you know find those pockets of opportunities that we fill in areas that we really know about. And on the biotech therapeutic space, the entry tickets I think haven't really changed that much. It's, I think it's lower than the US. But it really does accelerate. And there are kind of ballpark numbers of something that's very early stage, a university spin-out stage at the low single-digit million or thereabouts, a bit more. Up to when you have a clinical asset, you can go from 20, 30 million and plus, plus, plus. So people value things roughly on the stage of the pipeline that, that it's at. And obviously, there's other things that come into play, team and everything else. But ultimately, in biotechs, all the due diligence, I would say significant amount of is on the science and the data. It's a very data-driven investment in a way, un- unlike maybe some of the other areas where you invest, which is more management and more other things. But ultimately, in biotech, if the science is no good or it doesn't work, it doesn't matter if you've got the best CEO in the world. It can be very difficult, although the best CEO in the world can turn it around. Yeah. yeah. Do you think that makes this more of a specialist market? I mean, certainly, I, I'm no expert in the area. I, and the thought of looking at biotech company and trying to decide 
is it good or not, scares me in a way that a technology company probably doesn't. Yeah, and I think I think somewhat the answer to that is yes. I think when you invest in certain other companies, technology companies, you can understand more about it. But where you invest in biotech, we do a lot of due diligence on the science, and it's very specialist due diligence with uh-huh. medicinal chemists and various biologists with various pockets of expertise. So if you haven't done that due diligence, it would be much, much higher risk. And we've seen a lot of things get invested and backed by people not from the sector, uh, high, very high valuations, and does, that would scare me. But I think this is where a fund actually makes sense to have, there is a feat, obviously, to invest in a, into a fund, but I think we, we would earn that money because we were able to do that specialist due diligence and in, investing and build that broader portfolio, which, you know, does de-risk it from having a sort of, you know, investing all your money in one biotech and hoping for the best. Mm-hmm. So I think this is where a portfolio approach is important and having a fund team that has the expertise in-house to be able to do that kind of due diligence, just to make sure you're doing making sensible investments and the science, there is something real and, and tangible there. So the answer to your question, it is specialist, but it's the specialist market is growing exponentially. There's so much opportunity in biotech right now. And we all, and I'm sure we'll talk about the various technologies that are coming into play in COVID. It's a specialist area, but it's expanding you know, exponentially. Yeah. yeah, you mentioned technology there, and you already touched on AI. What is the potential role of AI in drug discovery? Because it, it it's preclinical trials. Yeah, I mean the potential of AI or machine learning. I think in healthcare broadly has really sort of come to light with COVID and you speed up clinical trials or you know digital wearables. That's not kind of what we do. We focus on where AI or machine learning can really support therapeutics, speeding up that long cycle that you mentioned for drug discovery to try to make that shorter. So we focus on two areas really. One is where you can identify new chemical matter or new drugs to target using AI and machine learning. And the second area is to identify good novel targets, which when you start the process, at least you have a much higher chance of it becoming a drug rather than working out the the drug target that you're working on was actually the wrong one. So we think that's where you can use technology to have a significant impact on timelines of discovery and development and also decrease failure rates. So that's the areas that we focus on. We don't try and do wearables and everything. We're focused on identifying new chemical matter which speeds up the process or identifying really valuable drug targets which ultimately big pharma are really interested in having that validated drug target so when you get to a phase three trial if it fails it wasn't because you didn't do your homework on the drug target it could be other reasons but as much homework you can do in that early stage and data you can create around that makes your asset way more valuable down the road i mean i, I say presumably I, I i'm no expert but Leave person looking at AI and machine learning. Machine learning is something that requires big data. Now, I don't know how many successful drugs we have out there, but I would imagine when you start talking about specific areas, there's not a lot of successful drugs. So how does AI get big data to do the machine learning? Well, first of all, the number of drugs that are being approved year on year is going up every year. So we're doing something right, whether it's AI machine mm-hmm. learning or... Yeah or just, you know, utilizing all our learnings. And, and a lot of that is probably done in this early stage where we play in that innovative space. But there's a lot of literature out there. There's a lot of information around a drug target or Oxford Drug Design, for example, one of our biotechs, they use the shape and the charge of a molecule to identify ligands that might bind to a particular drug target. So there's a huge amount of data that some of these companies can start to 
to generate or really just even extract from what's out there already and then analyze that data. So there's a huge amount of information data. We've been doing drug discovery for many, 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 many years. And those companies that can try to read through that data, pull it together, analyze it in the correct way and help you know, identify new targets or new chemical matter, I think that that's where the opportunities are. And that's where I think Big Pharma I think the opportunities are as well. Or they're looking much more broadly across the spectrum. They're looking at AI that can speed up a clinical trial or provide them with good uh, data from patients and help analyze that to maybe make a better drug in the future, et cetera. But, you know, it can impact our industry in so many different ways. Yeah, and is, is, is that a case of you just, whenever you're in a, a clinical trial, you would actually collect a lot more data points from the individuals in the trial? Or is it just a case of you just got so many people in a trial and if you throw some AI at it, it'll, something will pop out? Well, in the clinical trial space, the interesting area, is, there probably is that, there is something there, but the ones that we've seen, which have been quite interesting, is helping to Big Pharma to identify patients patient recruitment and getting up to speed quickly with building that data package to submit to regulatory authority is, you know, it's a very slow process and we're learning this with some of our companies, you know, trying to find patients quickly can really speed up the development pathway and Big Pharma and there are some tech companies out there, Pangea is one, that are using the information already out there to help Big Pharma identify patients and maybe for orphan or rare disease, it can be quite difficult to identify patients and even for, for other indications as well. But that's where they're using that data, I think, quite effectively to help support speed up clinical trials. You wouldn't have thought of it that patient recruitment is you know, a significant bottleneck. But um, we've seen in COVID as well, some, sometimes start a clinical trial in a particular geography and then the number of patients that they can access reduces very quickly because there's a lockdown, they're dealing with the disease very well, et cetera. And then suddenly they don't have patients and have to quickly go somewhere else. Yeah. Was it the Pfizer or the Moderna trial? I think they delayed it until they had the right proportion of minorities in the sample. Yeah. So if you can use data to AI or machine learning to help identify those patients where they are, yeah, which hospitals they're in, ident- you know, that sort of level of detail, I think that will help speed up clinical trials. Yeah. So what other technologies or areas do you think are really interesting at the moment? Well, I think cell and gene therapy is one that everybody's interesting in. And, you know, there are a number of opportunities in the UK and in the US in this area. Probably the US are putting significant amount of capital into this. It's quite difficult for smaller funds to invest in this area. We've done one, which is pencil biosciences, and we had to go in very early. It's looking at gene editing technology. But there's such huge money chasing some of those cell and gene therapies. It's quite difficult sometimes to find something that's suitable for early stage investors. Small molecule therapeutics, we do a significant amount of that because they, the cost of developing a small molecule and even selling small molecules has been low. There's a huge amount of experience in the world in small molecules. And so that's an area of technology that we focus a lot on. Within the sort of the, sort of the biology remit, there's area things like immune oncology that there's a lot of partnering and deals that happen post investment. So that's an area that we, you know, we like to look at. But you know, even specialist areas like, you know, I mentioned macular disease, where AMD is an area that it's not, you know, something that every big farmer is working on sort of eye diseases. But there are that those that do, you know, put a significant amount of money behind that and will acquire and buy early. The other area that we invested in, and you know, we we invested in this at a time when most people didn't, was in the antibiotic space. We think there's a huge need for antibiotics there's only a few antibiotics that have proved that work and we're becoming resistant to them we, we all know this but you know the big pharma pulled out of them because they found it very difficult to monetize 
their innovations because you know the ones that work actually work very very well and so they sort of sit on the shelf for a long time but you need them for the times that you know you become resistant and resistance is increasing and so big pharma pulled out of this space a lot of the big funds stopped investing where but we backed a company called oxford drug design and they have an antibiotic they're developing it's in still in preclinical stage but they have a huge amount of soft money helping support that program so apart from the money that we've invested they have a carbex award which is a, a body that's come together, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Wellcome Trust, US government money, and various other bodies have come to help support the antibiotic space. So they and them and other awards have around $11 million of soft money just being pumped into that particular program, non-dilutive for, for, for us as investors. And because of COVID, but even before COVID, this was going to happen, people now see the importance of having effective backstop of other antibiotics so that we're not in the same situation we are today with COVID. Um, and there's things like the Pasteur Act and the Defence Act in the US. If they come into play, it will change the way that big, uh, biotechs or pharma are remunerated for their innovations in the antibiotic space. In the UK, we've already put through something that is very effective and will we'll change the game for biotechs in developing antibiotics. In the UK, they will get basically rewarded on how good the antibiotic is rather than just how much white powder they sell. And I think if that mirrors in the US and in other geographies as well, it's a game changer. And we're already invested in something in that space. And I think that's an area that we you know, will continue to support. Yeah. Can you talk a bit more about, because one of the issues out there to some extent is that the industry has, pharma pharmaceutical industry, and probably more big pharma than biotech today, have been accused of perhaps not focusing on the areas that are a lot of need. So malaria has always been the one people have talked talked about. Antibiotics is an area where there's clearly great need. And you talk about big farm of pulling back from that, but there's clearly something to address that. Do you think the industry's really focused properly? One thing is for certain, on just come to COVID because it's so topical, you know, there's been like 100 new therapeutics in place since the first few months of the first lockdown in development. There's been several vaccines that have been super fast, quick charge time, me is a mere, a mere sort of small cog in the massive industry of, of the therapy. If I come across any idea in COVID that I thought was interesting and I emailed head of R&D of several pharma about various things, they would reply back to me straight. They were right on the button on this. And I think that the industry, you know, we can always criticise big pharma. Profit, you know, they are commercial entities at the end of the day. But when it came to COVID and it really mattered, I have to say, hand on heart, people at the very top of big pharma were right on the button on this. They would forward me, they'd look at things I sent them, evaluate them, put me in touch with the right people, not for any gain of their own, even from one farmer to another, to a CRO, over the place. And I think that big farmer really, all the big farmer, I would say, not just one of them, you know, obviously some got lucky with the vaccine than others, but they all try to help each other in a very collegiate way to support what we've been through in the last year or so. So yeah, we can always criticise big farmer and, you know, it's, it's easier to do that. But I have to say, positively and i've got no investments in any particular one or the other in terms of pharma but they really did a great job of producing developing collegiately working with academics and getting us to the stage where we have a number of options not just the vaccines that we all know about there's probably a hundred therapeutics in the pipeline now and so we are you know we're very likely to solve this particular pandemic but it's probably a dry run for the future you know mm-hmm. this is not going to be the only one no i think we've seen over the last couple of decades several I would say it almost attempted pandemics. I mean, some of them were declared 
And I think we've been lucky in the UK because they kind of avoided us or, or didn't make it here properly. Yep. Whereas Southeast Asia has clearly handled this better, probably because they've had the, the trial runs. What changes long run do you see COVID making on the industry? I mean, obviously, we've seen an accelerated approval process for some therapeutics and people saying, well, why can't we get a bit more of this? The one big change is that everyone's become interested in science. Everyone I speak to is has a basic level of biology, which they would never have had two years ago. And so I think that there's a huge interest in science. They've seen how science is important to what we do. They've learned a lot about science and are having quite good conversations with people who are not who have no scientific training or not from the industry. And they do understand now about how the importance of it and, and some basic biology. I think that's one big thing. That's obviously that's a lot more money coming into the biotech sector. Again, I reiterate it's that probably at the later stages. I think that's the one big change that there's a lot more awareness, the value of science now, and why it's important. And therefore, I think that you know people are thinking, look, I invest hundred pounds in the world, five pounds of that should be in, in science and supporting those types of countries, and they can see the value of that. So I think that's one big change. I think there'll be on the back of that, there'll be a lot more investment, a lot more drugs produced, a lot more innovation that will happen. In in the UK, we've been starved of capital, despite our great scientific background that we have. And you know, it's not a new industry in the UK now. It's been running for about 30 years. Obviously, it's more mature in the US. But I think that's one big difference, and we'll see a, a lot more capital uh, come from intersector. Yeah, I mean, certainly we've seen private capital. One of the things that I wonder about a little bit is we've seen systemic weaknesses, which perhaps not so much in the biotech development, but perhaps in the institutional way about preparation and distribution has clearly been areas that have not gone well. How do you see those changing and, and uh, those have an effect on drug development? You know, I do see somewhat, and I'm on the board of the BIA, and they have paid a pivotal role. So the Biotech Industry Association, so they are a collection of people that uh, support the industry, et cetera, and it's a membership organization. But a lot, a lot, many of the biotech and pharma are, are members and members of their sort of senior level pharma guys as well. But basically they have been extremely supportive in the background. And I have to say they give them a little bit of a plug because they deserve it. The whole Kate Bingham and the whole vaccine procurement process and people who know her in the sector, and there was a lot said, said about her in the press, but those who knew her knew that she would be on a mission just to acquire vaccines quickly and early. And you know, she really has done that. So I have to give her her dues. She was a former member of the BIA and, and she's been quite supportive in the manufacturing task force. Again, manufacturing these vaccines. We have been really quick on the buzzer and the BIA have had working groups in this space to support fast manufacturing. We see that now that we are ahead of the game. That was a lot of background effort that we've done pre-thinking and very quick money, very quick decisions were made very early on in the pandemic as to if we're successful, how we're going to manage and do this. And so I can't remember what your question was. <laughs> but I think I think I wanted to say that the ecosystem in the UK is very, very joined up. It's it's not, you know, all over the place. People are making quick decisions. And people in this biotech industry, look, hopefully we will make money from our investing, and I think we will, um, obviously, and I'll put my own money into our own fund. So 10% of everything we do is is as money but i think more than that is that we we have this enjoyment that we can see a lot of what we do you know having that 
let's call it ESG or whatever effect you have, it has a very positive impact on society. So we're very lucky that hopefully we can make a profit. But at the same time, we're doing something that we think is very important. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. I think it's very definitely uh, an area that really matters to society, which is one of the reasons why I think we're all interested in it now. That awareness has probably permeated into places where we've kind of taken these things for granted, I think, a little, and we don't anymore. So what I'd like to do now is I'm going to move on to our standard questions. So we've got a, a few things here that we'll throw at you and see what your thoughts are going to this be. This is like a quick fire answer round, you know. <laughs> so what was the most recent publicly announced investment that you made and why? Right. So that would be Infoderm and it's a spin out from Dundee. And they're looking at BET2 inhibitors for things like psoriasis and other skin diseases. There's a huge wall of data that, uh, that we invested in as we, we, we led that investment. We were able to do good due diligence. And because there's very few pre-seed or early stage investors in the space, once a fund like O2H decides to invest, the round fills up very quickly. So we were able to bring in other investors alongside the Scottish Investment Bank as well to support that spin out from Dundee. So we thought there was a huge wall of data that people running the company were experienced biotech professionals so they knew how to industrialize the science and we backed them. And so far, so good. There Excellent. You go. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's still early days if you just invested, but it, yeah. it, it, I agree. But yeah, there's also already commercial interest put it that way. Oh, that's a very yeah. good start. Yeah, it's a good start. <laughs> In the classic venture capital triumvirate of market product and management, which one do you think is the most important? I, I do other angel investing, I think in tech and other things, management probably is has higher weighting but i think in biotech you know if you get the science wrong and you don't invest in the right innovation or the right science then even if you've got the best sea in the world or the best management it can be quite an uphill road so having the right science and the right technology let's say or the innovation behind the the management team is the most important thing that we look at so that's the first thing and because we invest very early we can often put in management or help support fine management etc but you know it's very hard to go back and fix the science or very expensive so it's make, making sure that we do as much due diligence as we can obviously we, we don't always get it right but you know doing as much as we can on this science getting that right and then then if, the, if we love the science we'll find the right team you know mm -hmm. okay that makes sense Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from it. Oh, it's always a hard question, but, you know, look, I probably I invested in, into a company where I probably wasn't vocal enough at the board level. That's probably quite early stage in my angel investing mm -hmm. or fund investing life cycle and probably didn't have the confidence at that stage, even though I had exits under my belt. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of more experienced people than me in the sector and I probably was, was not vocal enough. So now I'm pretty, probably the other board members are, are hopefully will, you know, probably smiling as they listen. I'm pretty vocal on the board. I, I say what I think I need to say, and I don't hold back. If I feel I've got a point to make, even if I make myself look stupid, I make sure I say what I think I need to say. I think that's a learning point for that particular one. I think if I spoke my mind more clearly and more forcefully, it might save that particular company. It's interesting because I've got to know you a little bit over the last year or so. You don't strike me as a person that holds back very much, but you have to remember that in the biotech sector, there's a lot of experience, a lot of grey hair, and and with depth of science and depth of business, etc. And people have been doing it a long time. So have an entrepreneur and exited doesn't give me the right to take some of these very experienced people, and you know, so it can be intimidating. I mm -hmm. think um, yeah, at the, at the board. 
I'm middle aged, let's say, you know, at some <laughs> stage of my career. So, so yeah, I had to go through that a little bit of probably making sure that I have the right confidence to to say what I need to say because sometimes you can say things and look stupid, and a lot of these people are your peers, so you can be, you know, very careful. But now I'm less careful and less worried. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it's probably better. If you're worried about what other people are thinking about you, then you're probably not worried about the right thing in yeah. board meetings. I went from being an entrepreneur, pure entrepreneur, to being an investor very quickly because, you know, you have to invest your own money in that sense, you know. So I had to go through that learning experience as well. Of You know, there are other very big investors around the table and there's, you know, me who's been a successful entrepreneur, but I was still building my knowledge in the investment game. So, yeah. yeah. How did you find that transition? Was it something that came naturally or something that you, you very deliberately had to work at? I think it's partly natural. We've been investing in stocks and shares, and our dad got me investing in ang- you know, angling water and all the other things. Uh-huh. Uh, with my paper and money as a 13-year-old and a 10-year-old. So we, we were very familiar with investing from a very early age. We probably took a break from it somewhat when we were building the company called Oxygen Healthcare, which we sold. It was, it was a fairly natural transition for us, I would say. Yeah, I would say fairly natural transition for us because we've been investing as angels all along as we were building as well. As well. So and we invested in Acacia back in 2005, I think, as an angel, was in the friends and family round, which is now a listed company. And mm-hmm. it's, uh, even though we only put one bit of money in the very, very first round, and they went through drug failures and all lots of fundraising. We're still trading on one of the stock markets at 10 times what we put it in at. So, so we've been investing in the space. We have been investing, not significantly like we did since maybe 2015, but we've been dripping bits in and keeping abreast. So the EIS industry in which we work is far from perfect. How would you like to change it? <sighs> well, I think in biotech, the SES is brilliant, by the way, but it's just too small. If there's one thing I would really like to change on the SEIs, it needs to be a bigger amount for biotechs. So that's 150,000 yeah, maximum. Yeah, yeah. And then the, the tax breaks that they, we are offered are amazing in both EIS and on the SEIS. And, and I'm not looking to push the government on any more. I think for biotech, it's needed and it, to encourage that investment. I think you know, biotech is one of those sectors, that's, if anything, post-Brexit is going to really help us elevate huge potential there but it's so underinvested. So for biotech, those tax breaks need to be there. But I think they need to, the quantum need to be increased for the SEIS because a lot of these university spin-outs can take SEIS 150K at the early stage is, is, you know, we need more money there. So that's one thing. I think the KI fund is something that's been approved. Knowledge very intensive, well. which you are the first in the country to uh, get one out. So I'm very, congratulations. I think it's yeah, your well, number. I think it's, the rules are amazing, actually. Again, when we looked at it, as biotech investors, we couldn't understand why no one else had a knowledge-intensive fund because the you know, it felt like everything we do in biotech is knowledge-intensive. So mm-hmm. we are slap-bang in the middle of what really these things are designed to do. But, you know, we had discussions with HMRC and others around in, this, in the space to try to make sure that this, this worked for fund managers. So, we you know, we had those one-on-one discussions in London with HMRC to make sure that we, you know, it worked for biotechs in particular. And they understood the need for biotechs actually and why why it was it was important. We were going through Brexit at the time, even pre-COVID when we uh-huh. started discussions. But you know, we've we've made it work. Yeah, I think the, the big advantage with KI funds and knowledge intensive funds 
is that when an investor puts their money into a knowledge intensive fund, as long as we meet certain criteria in the investing period, et cetera, you know, it's, it's as if you invested into the underlying company at that time, rather than when we actually deploy the capital. So let me just detail that, for example. So most times, uh, if you invest into an EIS fund on, let's say, February or March or January, they may have lined up investments to put in before April the 5th tax deadline, which means you can claim your relief in that year or the year before. But what happens is panic stations for most EIS funds at that stage is that they a lot of IFAs say, we'll give you funds, say, look, we'll give you the money, but you have to deploy it before April the 5th, which A, is very, very stressful, could lead to bad decision making, and you may not have the right opportunities there anyway, and that can lead to frustration on both sides. So having the KI knowledge intensive fund rules in place means that if you invest into a knowledge intensive fund on April the 4th, or April the 1st is our next close, so on April the 1st, even though we don't deploy that money until, let's say, September, or, or June, you can still back claim the tax incentives that, that you gain by investing one year from then. And so, for example, now would be 2019-2020 tax year or in that year, rather wait until we deploy it. So that certainty when you get the tax incentive, I think is one of the, the main, there are other uh, incentives as well, so you can invest more money and other things. But you know, because we invest in biotech, everything we do is has to be knowledge intensive pretty much. I think it's a huge advantage for, for a biotech fund to have the KI stamp on it and and be an HMRC approved fund as well. So yeah, I think that is very big positive. Um, apart from that, I think you know I think the EIS system is actually so good. It's so good for UK investors, especially probably we will see tax rises to pay back the big burden that we've had to uh, well, we've had to do as a country to support other industries and um, retail and and furloughing and everything else. At some point, they're going to have to make money back from somewhere, the government. I have no inside information here, but I imagine <laughs> taxes will rise. I think that's the consensus views. so there's nothing controversial there. No, yeah, So, but, you know, having you know, the EIS in place to support industries like the biotech and making sure the government keep this in place, I think it's brilliant. You know, the only one thing I would just say is increase the SEIS, especially for biotech investing. At those spin-out stage, it's very hard for these start companies. We see great science in that space. We feel... I'm sure other people are going to enter the space at that early stage because there is great science available, uh, probably equally as good as the US, much lower valuation. We're seeing a lot of foreign capital come into, into, the, into that market, actually. But they do want a local partner. So if a, a Chinese investment firm or an American investment firm want to invest into early stage, they would still want someone, I think, to work with the entrepreneurs, the academics locally. And so that SAS money is very, very important at that stage. Yeah, I know ESA are lobbying for the next budget, or if you're listening to this long time after publication, the last budget, for that limit to be increased to 250000 So hopefully the Chancellor will look kindly on that. Hopefully uh, she's listening to our podcast. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. We'll send him a, we'll send him a link. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but no, but but they, 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 you know, obviously, um, I'm involved in a few other organisations. But uh, the BIA also feel it's important to increase the SOS limit, and we have been one of the key criteria of, of lobbying for in, into politics and that. So yeah, it's, it's important. But I think EIS is all we. I mean, it's just it's such a big benefit of of uh, something really creative that the UK government has done over many years, and just. Hopefully, people don't abuse it, and if it's used in the right way for things like biotech, where it's really needed, I think it will be it will stay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in a way, I'm surprised therapeutics aren't more popular in EIS because it does seem to fit all the criteria really well. 
Yes. Lockdown's been fantastic for my reading. I've got through dozens and dozens of books. Um, do you have any books that you like and would recommend? I've stopped reading business books when I did my MBA pretty much. I kind Fair of pick up the odd business book and most of my reading is more recreational. But if I, if I had to have one bit of read for people who are interested in this space, I would go to the BIA website and they did an industry report on biotech investing therapeutics. It's very reader-friendly. And uh, if you went to their website, um, you could download the report. And I think it's it's like 20 pages or so. Um, it's an easy read. I would recommend reading that. And I'll give you quite a lot of insight onto the trends in biotech, where people are investing, why it's interesting space, how much money is going in. Um, and I'll give you quite a lot of knowledge and background around biotech investing. So I think that's one thing I would read. Okay, we'll put a link to that in the show notes so people can find it easily. What do you wish you knew when you started O2H that you know now? So much. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, I've been doing O2H really since 2000. So, you know, me and Prashant, you know, obviously together, we're brothers. We've been learning off each other for doing this for, as entrepreneurs and, and as fund managers for 17 or even 20 years. So, so we've been in there a long time. And you learn so many lessons along the way, worked in different geographies, whether it's India, the US, Japan. Obviously, we've seen the biotech industry evolve and it's really hard to just put a finger on one thing. I think one thing is important to have, having that team supporting each other and with different skill sets. So Prashant and I, we obviously have been doing this together for a long time and we are, fund is one thing we do, but we obviously have this ecosystem around whether it's the incubator and the, the, and the great two listing buildings that we're developing redeveloping in, in Cambridge or the collaborative um, services that we're building around the ecosystem to support early stage biotech. I think it's been a, a fantastic journey. You do need that team effect and it's never always easy to have that yin and the yang at that stage, but having that you know team support around you to help you on the journey and knowing that you just don't know everything, and especially in my sector in biotech, you know, there's so many pockets. I always phone a friend if, you know, if we're talking about oncology and biology, I may pull up Chris and say, hey, Chris, you know, you're an expert in the space. What do you think? So you, you have to not have an ego, leave your ego at home, be able to call up people just because in this industry, you can have people who know have a lot more deeper knowledge than you are all over the place. So it's just really being able to feel that you can call people up, ask them for help. And people in our sector, really, really friendly. They'll give you time. They'll give you the knowledge and they won't even charge you for it. They're just just happy to, to talk about it. So we feel lucky. But I think it's having that team around you and experts around you and be willing to just say, look, we don't know the answer. Let's, let's have a call. Yeah. No, it, it, it's particularly nice if you've got a community like that around you because it can make the whole thing much more pleasant, I think. Well, Brian, it's just not a UK community, a biotech community. And I think uh, post-COVID, um, this has been brought even more to light, is that it's a global community. And uh, you see seamlessly bi biotech companies work globally. They, they did it before, but because because we've been forced to do it, it's like if you're a biotech in, let's just say, in New York, and you want to go on NASDAQ, it doesn't matter if you're a New York-based biotech company or you're based in Oxford, because you're still going to have to go to Zoom call to talk to each other and pitch and find investors and whatnot. So I think that that global reach, the opportunities for UK biotech in that sense uh, are better than they were before, because US is a massive market for, because of NASDAQ, driven NASDAQ and the, and the capital available. I think it's going to really open up for our UK biotechs to potentially maybe list on NASDAQ, and we're seeing some of them come through. Um, but I think we'll see more of that. So I think this global environment where the 
great science in the UK, exit opportunities in the US, capital from XYZ. We have a Zoom call and often in biotech, you need experts from around the world. You need the best cancer biologists in a very specific area. Mm-hmm. And that person may exist, but he's in Singapore or she's in Singapore. But then you have a Zoom call and very quickly you've pulled in five geographies, a panel of experts, and you can start to make quick decisions. And people are now much more willing and being forced to do that. And I think, yeah, it's me. It's, it's very, you know, I, my Zoom calls are pretty much just someone from another country on every particular of the calls. Sounds fantastic. I'm a great fan of cross-cultural things. So if anyone wants to find out any more about what you're doing, where should they go? It's very simple. Go to O2H Ventures and download the information memorandum and read more about what, what we're doing. So O2HVentures.com or if you go to O2H.com and it goes to O2H Ventures, it's O as in the letter O, number two, H, which confuses the hell out of medicinal chemists. They're like the covalent and bonding in an O2H. But it's, what's <laughs> I was trying to figure called, out. <laughs> what we were called oxygen healthcare in the previous life. So the O2 is basically oxygen as in the letter O, number two, and H for healthcare. So that's how the name came about. There's no clever chemistry involved. It's just a brand name. But I get email from medicinal chemists saying, how does that work? <laughs> I've, I've got me. I was sitting there at home looking at the name thinking, how does that work? I don't remember that from my chemistry school. No, school. No. I'm doing I'm doing a GCC chemistry with my son right now and, and trying to explain to him, so is that your, is that your logo? Because it's water. And it's, you know, I said, don't, it's just a logo. <laughs> don't even <laughs> think about the bonding that's involved there. And you've been doing some chai time sessions. Are those coming back at some point? Yeah, so I mean, at the beginning of the first lockdown, we decided uh, every other week or back then it was every week, we would do sessions on... Webinars. webinars on investing into biotech or we could do a specialist thing on oncology and i would chair some of them chair some but we get specialist chairs in as well who are experts in the space very global in their nature so yeah they're all available on our youtube channel if you go to youtube and google chai time o2h you'll see all the past ones there there's some pretty interesting topics around investing in biotech and other things but the answer to your question is yes they're coming back and we're just putting a, a, a good panel together for our next one, which will, will be on biotech investing probably in about two, three weeks' time. So if you download our IM, actually, or you register on our website to know more information around the fund, you automatically will get an invite to the Chai Time. I've listened into the three, and they've definitely been enjoyable and very interesting and very educational. So I, I've been appreciating them. Uh, thank you. Thanks, Brian. No, we just really enjoy doing it. We love talking about the sector and what we're doing. They're very open forums, very relaxed, and yeah. Prashant and I both are fighting over to chair them because we just enjoy we enjoy doing it. So yeah, hopefully we've got got a few few good ones lined up. Excellent. Well, I enjoyed doing this, and I definitely <laughs> enjoyed today's conversation. So thank you very much for coming on, Susanil. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate your time. So we hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanco.com forward slash podcast. If you like, really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.